This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. This is episode 11. Today, my guest is Dr. Gail Hornberger. She is the owner and provider at Midnight Sun Family Medicine in Fairbanks, Alaska. Dr. Hornberger received her DO from the Chicago School of Osteopathic Medicine, and she's also quite the Alaskan former pilot, homestead in Lake Clark area, and been here since she was about three. Dr. Hornberger, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I just recently recorded a show about flying. It's had quite a bit of good reception. Some people have been a little bit upset with the with the guests that I had on or some of the positions that I, I took. I don't have a position in the medical field. I'm not involved in the medical field, but I do know that DPC practices in Alaska are pretty far and few between. There's not very many of them, and so that's why I'm really interested in talking about it because it is a different model than the normal healthcare process. It definitely is. I personally think that direct primary care is um, really one of the options to help boost American medical care out of the pit that we're in right now. But I'm quite certain that there are many that would argue with me about that. Well, and I'm out and I record this show in Bristol Bay in Dillingham. I think that you have a little bit of history with Bristol Bay. So maybe a little bit of what led you into medicine or a little bit about Dr. Hornberger and then we'll jump into the healthcare issues and some of the, the medical issues? Well, yes, I grew up in Bristol Bay, and my early exposure to medicine was actually um, Dr. John Libby, who lived with his wife in Dillingham, and they flew over the peninsula doing clinics in the villages, and so that was my exposure, and I guess you could say he always was somewhat of my hero. Well, and, but I don't mean to interrupt you on this, but just so that just so that this is just an interesting Alaska type of issue. I've never okay. met you. You've never met me, but I did reach out to you to record the show. We haven't pre-talked about any of these issues. You knew things from Dr. John Libby. I currently live in, Dr. John Libby had one son named Jim, other sons, but I currently live in a house that I bought from Jim Libby, so from his son. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Alaska, big state, small town, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So, well, he was my, um, like, medical hero, I guess. And um, when I went to school, medical school, um, I, I attended University of Alaska Fairbanks. And, uh, you know, just to plug there, I think anybody can get a great education at, at through the university system in Alaska. But did my pre-med there, went to school in Chicago, always wanted to come home. And my internship residency just got me closer to home. When I came back, um, I worked at our community health center here in Fairbanks. I had a four-year, a three-year National Health Corps payback, um, which I completed there at the clinic, worked a year there additionally. And then for personal reasons, I needed some flexibility in my schedule. And so I chose to open a clinic of my own, Midnight Sun Family Medicine. And 
Midnight Sun Family Medicine has been a very successful clinic here in Fairbanks. Um, started actually 9-11-2001, and um, just we grew from that point um, to several years ago, uh, had a patient panel of about 6,000 and many employees, a large, large practice, very stressful, um, and just made the decision that I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Had some personal health issues that caused me to kind of step back and take a look. And um, direct primary care just captured my attention. I felt with the model that I was in, which is pretty much mainstream medicine, you know, where you're, you might have a 15-minute um, time frame to see a patient, and maybe seven minutes of that time frame is where you actually get to potentially touch a person or talk to them. I just felt that I was not able to provide the kind of medical care that I wanted to provide to people. And I should put a little blurb in and say that you know my focus is very um, preventative in helping people stay healthy. I, I always tell my patients, I don't tell you what to do. I'm your coach. I give you information. And I, I really want you to invest in your own health and, and work on your own health. So that being said, I think it's about four years ago now, um, I began researching and with the help of a, um, well, I don't know what you call them, I guess a, a coach, I made the transition to direct primary care and it's been a very interesting transition. Well, I, I really want to talk specifically about the direct primary care model and um, and what you have set up now. I'm excited to hear that it, it didn't necessarily start out that way because you get a look at both sides of it. So we'll talk about the DPC model shortly, but... First, let me talk about just the medical field structurally because you talked about maybe there's DPC, concierge. The, those are things that we'll touch on most of this show, and then you have the mainstream. And there's a lot yeah. of pros and cons to our system. I think that our system of healthcare produces a lot of research. It produces a lot of new technology, a lot of people that are coming to study and make profit, which benefit the world in general. But if there was one thing I could complain about in our system – it would be mainly the insurance and pricing. I know, and I know that you would tell me that I need to go to the doctor. I tend not to go to the doctor and get checkups. A lot of that is because of things that you touched on. I don't really think that the doctor's going to spend very much time talking to me. I have no idea how much it's going to cost me. So could you talk a little bit about why insurance, when you're talking in the mainstream, why it's structured that way, why pricing is hard to see, why insurance is difficult to understand for the consumer? Oh my gosh, you've just you you've covered like two miles worth of topics there. But first, I want to reassure you and say that as a man, you are not out of the norm in not wanting to go to the physician. And I don't say that meaning to hurt anyone's feelings or offend anyone. But you know, men men tend not to go to the doctor, so don't don't beat yourself up for that. Oh, okay, so, so I'm normal. You're you're in the norm. You are. So, um, if we. I guess I need to say a disclaimer. This is this is my opinion. I'm not quoting anyone else, but in my opinion, a big part of the the biggest part of where we're at in medicine right now is what comes down to the business of medicine. And the business of medicine is huge and you touched on that a little bit. There's research indeed. You know, there's the pharmaceutical aspect which is just really um, very predominant. There's the insurance aspect as well. And 
if we take a step back and look at insurance, I'm going to do a little comparison here. So if you buy car insurance, you do not expect your auto insurance to cover um, basic maintenance, right? Like oil changes or your brakes or your fan belt, correct? Correct. And, and oftentimes we don't even consider that insurance is going to cover even some mid to, to major repairs. Exactly. And so, so if we, if we look at healthcare, my question would be, why do we expect healthcare to cover everything? And I've had this conversation with others and, um, you know, people say, well, healthcare is so expensive. Okay. That comes back to the business of medicine and we go back to insurance. Insurance is a for business organization, correct? They are for profit. Yep. Yep. For profit. So, so the, the business of medicine, and I'm, I don't have exact dates for you, but, um, health insurance really started back, um, and I'm sure there will people, there will be people that say, no, she's wrong, but health insurance really began to be an issue, um, back with, um, Kaiser when they were building a dam. I want to say it was Hoover Dam, might be wrong, but as part of a, a way to attract workers, they began providing health insurance for their workers. And sort of at the same time, Medicare was pushed through by the by the government and became an entity. And so there was the idea then of, you know, coverage for elders initially. Anyway, through through the early part of health insurance, you're young enough you probably don't recall, but I recall having to go to Anchorage at one point to see a physician for something and my mother saying, be sure to get the insurance paperwork. I have to file the insurance paperwork. So in the initial stages of insurance, people would go, they would see the physician, um, they would either pay or be billed, and the physician would give them their insurance form to file. And I suspect probably what, what became more of the norm is that to ensure that they got paid more quickly because, you know, people sometimes had to make payments and so on. And uh, physicians' offices began billing insurance companies more as a convenience to the patient that was easier. And from that, we now see, and I'm simplifying greatly, but from that we see the business of medicine. Um, and insurance is a huge part of that. I'm going to just step back and say that I feel like I can speak to this with some clarity because I have seen everything from a very busy, successful, mainstream medical practice to a direct primary care practice. And within my mainstream medical practice at one time, the cost of billing insurance for me as the owner of that practice was well over $100,000 a year. And so you might say, oh, whoa, well, what does that cover? These are things that a patient, you know, a, a, an average person just doesn't understand about medical care. And that is that in order for us to bill insurance, we have to submit diagnoses with codes. There are certain codes that go with every diagnosis. And so a claim to insurance has to have those codes if there's, you know, I'm just going to throw a number out. If it's, let's say, um, E11.92, 
and that 0.92 is not correct, according to the insurance company, they'll kick that claim back to us. And we might not be paid for, oh my gosh, I've got claims that are still pending for over a year, or I've had claims that were pending, you know, for over a year. So just because you have insurance and you give the physician your insurance information doesn't mean that that physician is going to be paid. You follow me? Right. And it doesn't have very much to do with exactly what that physician is going to get paid. That's one of the things with the pricing that um, I I do know that. So when you were talking about Kaiser Hoover back then, there was some some wage controls. If you go back into World War II, wage controls, you couldn't pay people a certain amount. Another interesting fact is that they made it illegal to do gold mining and horse racing, which were looked at as luxuries during the time. So, yeah, which is which really hurt the Alaska gold mining industry up until we got back into the 1980s and it got more liberalized. But that's another topic. So employers got involved in providing the health insurance. But then when you get to the medical doctors, do do some doctors with insurance charge different rates to different insurances? Is that how that somewhat works? Well, no. Another mile worth of topics here. But I think maybe where you're coming from is more from the past where there was a disparity in charges. And again, I'm sure you're going to get all kinds of discussion about this, but there was a disparity in charges so that hospitals, institutions, clinics could provide some of that, um, I'm going to call it indigent care, but care for people who really couldn't afford care. But then the people who had insurance basically covered that care through the charges that were paid. Or maybe people who were paying cash and could afford it were charged more. And again, I'm sure that will open a hornet's nest, but there was an agreement, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the year and the agreement, but there was a, there was a process by which the government and hospitals work together. Gosh, I wish I could think of the name of the, the agreement. But anyway, there was an agreement and hospitals were able to cover some of that quote-unquote indigent care because of this payment agreement or payment process. I'll have to look into that and I can get back to you with it later on if you want. Nowadays, I don't think you're going to find that billing disparity. There's too much regulation in place But what you do find is um, I do think that there are many hospitals that charge quite a lot. There are many hospitals that have purchased clinics and um, now have their, their own standalone clinics. They have urgent cares. And many people don't realize this. You know, they think, oh, urgent care, I can go to urgent care. Everything's great. Well, again, we come back to the business of medicine, and that is, and urgent care can charge more for a visit because they are designated as an urgent care facility. So if a clinic, say, has a, a lovely big clinic and their family medicine practice is full, then someone calls in to be seen. That person can be shuffled through the urgent care clinic. It's an urgent care clinic, so the bill is going to be higher. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, I mean... I think from my like how it works from the billing and how that urgent care center is getting paid more, I understand how that makes sense to me. From mm-hmm. a consumer standpoint, I think it doesn't make that much sense. 
Well, it doesn't because it comes back to the business of medicine and and the average person, to which I mean no disrespect, disrespect to anyone, but if you're not involved in medicine, you haven't experienced the business of medicine, you really don't understand this. But if, say, if I had a an average mainstream medical practice and a person came to me, then they're an established person. We have codes. We have a 99211 and 99212, a 213, 14, and 15. And those codes all designate levels of service. And of course, the higher the you can go and you can 
um, use any piece of equipment they have. You can, you know, take part in classes. If you want to tan, you might have to pay a bit extra for the tanning. Or if you want to have a massage, you might have to pay extra for the massage. But your monthly membership fee covers most of what that gym provides, correct? You follow me? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So direct primary care works on the the main premise. And I'm I'm just going to step back and say the reason that a physician might want to do that is because, number one, with direct primary care, you can have a smaller patient panel. And I'm going to speak to some of the arguments against direct primary care as well. But now, when you number say, one, when you say uh, patient panel, just for anybody that understands, that's just the reference to the number of patients that one physician is seeing, right? Correct. So, so I will I will contrast when when Midnight Sun Family Medicine was at its peak of profitability or success, the patient panel that we carried was about six thousand patients. That's a lot of patients. That's that's total, not per physician, though. It is. It is. It's not good. <laughs> and now, um, a patient panel for a direct primary clinic goal is usually somewhere around five to six hundred. And so, so people can right away see the contrast. Number one, there's there's fewer people being cared for. The physician then is freer to work for the patient. And with direct primary care, it is a membership model. Therefore, you pay that physician or that entity a membership fee each month. And and that membership varies. It could be based on age. It could just be a flat fee, which is what my clinic charges right now. Um, it, it could be kind of a sliding fee. I think most clinics, uh, direct primary care charge on average somewhere from 40 to $150 um, per month. So that's a monthly fee. And and let me step back and say the reason a physician might do this is it's a smaller group of people that they're caring for. It allows us to have the time to work for patients. Patients become the focus again. Insurance is no longer part of the factor. Part, it's no longer part of the issue. And so we're not fighting with insurance to take care of people the way that we think they should be taken care of, the way that, that our guidelines direct us to take care of them. So it really returns control of that healthcare industry more back to the patient and the physician. And it helps us to reorient the person or patient back into the center of the healthcare experience. Well, okay. Now, if you're in a larger, because a lot of people, people understand their uh, family practice, the mainstream family practice in rural areas. I think that um, in smaller areas, anyways. But mm-hmm. but the majority of the people, and where all of the noise gets generated on some of this mainstream topic, is going to be in larger areas. Where let's let's say you're in a large hospital, you've got dozens and dozens of providers. You have administrators. You probably have consultants that are looking at Six Sigma type of efficiencies and consumer one through five returns, uh, production by the physician, the physicians being directed, their schedules being directed by administrators that are saying this is the most efficient output for the hospital. So there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. Yes. DPC is completely different. Yes. So what you're speaking to is the business of medicine. And I just have to say, I saw a graph just recently that looked at 
administration versus physician or um, I'm going to use the word provider, which I have to say I really hate, but providers versus administration. And the administrative costs are are exponentially higher than the cost of physicians. So as part of that, as part of the public perception of medicine, again, the average person has this image of a physician where, you know, physicians are rich. They make these hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars a year. And I'm going to tell you, there are physicians that make pretty amazing income based on their training. I know heating plumbing specialists that make more than I do hourly. So if if you want to blame the cost of medicine on physicians, I'm going to say a person uh, on physician income, a person should then take a look at the cost of the business of medicine or administrative. So what you've just spoken to is the administrative slash business of medicine. Okay. So so when a when you step into direct primary care, I'm going to come back to this. It's a monthly fee. And what does that monthly fee cover? Well, like in a gym, it covers as much or as little as you want to use that medical practice. It covers checkups. It covers routine care. It covers sick care. It covers in-office procedures. Um, it covers, believe it or not, I do house calls. It covers personal care. Visits are 30 to 60 minutes. My average visit now is probably 20 to 40 minutes. So we could say an average of 30. My patients don't wait. I have a lovely waiting room, but you know what? They walk in the door and we're like, come on in. We're ready for you. Which a and lot of people then, could appreciate that. Right. And so then I always tell people, it's direct primary care. You have direct access to me. My members have my cell phone. Just recently, I'm at my desk working, my cell phone rings, and a patient who's in Singapore is calling me because she's in Singapore and she has an issue and she doesn't know what to do. What should she do? And I was able to help her through that health issue so that, number one, her vacation wasn't ruined, and number two, she wasn't thrown on the mercy of an unknown medical environment. Now that's, you know, there might be issues where a person does have to go to the hospital in Singapore, but with direct primary care, you have access to your physician. And I always tell my patients, please don't call me just to chat. (laughs) You know, and if you're, if you're, if it's five o'clock in the afternoon and you're feeling sick, don't wait until midnight to call me. Call me at five because I have a life too. And Honestly, my patients respect that. They don't abuse it, and I appreciate that very much. So you can get you can get checkups. Now, I, I went onto your website, and I'm just looking at the family. Um, so you've got it listed. Prices may be different now. Like $3,600 is in the neighborhood of, of your yearly fee for a family. Right. And so if I compare that, I do not have a DPC anywhere near me in Bristol Bay. Our... Insurance costs are when I when I calculate it out for the for the year, we do not have employer sponsored health insurance. We pay for it entirely privately. It's over twenty thousand dollars for for the family, and we have over a ten thousand dollar deductible. So that's basically ah, catastrophic insurance. That is catastrophic, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that is very expensive compared to $3,600. So I've got children. Can I bring my children in if they've got a little sore throat or something like that? Is that the type of thing that a DPC is taking care of? So that's going to depend on your physician. I am a, a, I'm a diehard family physician, and I tell people from the cradle to the grave. So Unfortunately, I don't do obstetrics anymore, but um, I, you know, I, I love children. I love seeing children. I've had, yes, I have taken care of from the cradle to the grave. Not every physician may, may follow that. You know, some physicians may want to focus more on adult care, but a person who's coming to see me, I do have children. Um, I have elders last summer. I did home visits on a weekly or more frequent basis for a woman who was end-stage cancer, and and we were able to allow her to die at home because I could do home visits for her. So does that answer the question? Yeah, so, well, if if I have a a child, so they're going to vary for DPC. If if I have, I'm supposed to get, like, what, a checkup a year, maybe? Um, Well... (laughs) That's a little controversial now with our our national guidelines, which okay. um, the patients of mine who listen to this won't won't be surprised when they hear this. I don't always agree with our national guidelines, but um, yeah, on a yearly basis, you should touch bases with your physician. Okay, so if I come in and talk to you and, I, and you tell me, hey, Casey, your your blood pressure is a little bit high, and um, maybe there's a, there's one other thing to look at. I don't know. I'm not, like I said, I don't go to the doctor very often. I need to start. Now, are, are you working with the same uh, monthly fee that we have? Are you working with me to manage my blood pressure, get me uh, whatever medicine I've got to take, some lisinopril or, or whatever? You're helping me manage this and get it back down to normal, or is this something where I'm going to have to leave and, and go somewhere else? So as a family physician, we are trained to take care of, I'm going to say the common and some uncommon ailments. Um But yes, as my patient, you would come in because it's direct primary care. Your monthly fee covers however many visits you want to come in or however many visits we think you should come in for um, through the month. And I help you get your blood pressure down. Many direct primary cares do provide um, or they have access to um, generic medicines at low cost. That's not something that I have right now, but I work really hard to help people get their medications at low cost. So we'll go to different pharmaceutical companies and get their patient assistance forms and that sort of thing. And we help patients get their medicines at low cost. For children, for vaccinations, what I do is what is in the clinic, the vaccinations that I have in the clinic are charged at cost or wholesale plus 10 to 15%, and I say 10 to 15% because you know what shipping is like in Alaska. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that covers my shipping fees. And if I don't have the vaccine in the clinic, um, then we refer to um, the public health clinic or I'll send people over to the pharmacy, which I'm not as happy about. But vaccines are quite expensive, so I have to be careful with a lower patient panel you know, if I get in, say, 10 measles, mumps, rubella uh, immunizations at the cost of almost $2,000, and then I only use three of them before they expire, then then 
that's not cost effective for me. So you or vaccine vaccinations, you would just do the normal um, the recommendation, or or just that's on your discretion. You know, generally what vaccinations you recommend. So you do these. So I can take my children in, get them into a kindergarten or a first grade because you have the number of vaccinations. I still have to pay my monthly membership and it's going to cost me a little bit of extra for the vaccinations, but it is going to be at cost. So it's going to be plus 10 or 15 percent. So it's going to be cheaper vaccinations, but it is additional to the to the cost, my monthly cost. Right. It's it's cost or my wholesale cost plus 10 or 15 percent, depending on shipping, which in actuality, I, I haven't done a price comparison with the pharmacies, but um, that is cheaper than most of the pharmacies in town. Uh, on general, I think that most places probably double the wholesale cost of vaccines. Um, and then there's an injection fee as well. So um, a, a, if a DPC patient receives a vaccine here, it's cost plus 10 or 15 percent and that's above the membership fee well and if even if you're doubling it though as you mentioned i went through the numbers with looking at your clinic and looking at what i do and that's what i'm talking to you about is i've got to come up with roughly twenty seven thousand dollars of cost to make it more expensive for me to go see you than to stay with my normal insurance that's that's where i'm at right now when i'm looking at my numbers so yes now, if there's there's some sort of injury, like a, a broken leg or anything, and this is just because I don't, you have to assume that I don't know anything about family medicine, that I'm going to have to go to a different clinic. That's something I'm not coming to see you for. If you have a broken leg, the likelihood is that you will end up in the emergency room. I do not have x-ray capability in my clinic. And if I look at you and I strongly suspect you have a broken leg or a broken arm, that sort of thing. Um, you most likely will go through an urgent care, which would then send you to the ER. I usually tell people just go to the ER. But um, so, yeah, that's that's a problem. Um, I do some splinting and casting here in the clinic. I will be very honest and say I am not a specialist at it. And because it's a direct primary care, Again, coming back to the cost of medicine, um, I don't have a designated cast person, right? So you will probably end up going to the ER and they will splint you. Or if you come to me, I'll be like, oh, yes, crikey, your leg is broken. Let's get you splinted. Let's get you to the orthopedist. Um, Make sure that, you know, everything's set the way it should be because we don't want you to have long-term deficits. And then... Um, a lot of times when people um, end up going to the ER or something like that, they go to the orthopedist and then they come back and they do as much follow-up care with me as they can. And I have folks that go, for example, to Idaho for spinal surgery. Um, they go down, they get their care, they finish up you know, as the physician wants them to there, and then they come back and they do follow-up care with me and I coordinate that care with the doctor in Idaho. So I'm just going to add in here that many of my patients um, belong to um, health sharing entities. And I'm going to throw a few names out. Um, MediShare, Samaritan, United. uh, I think there's Republic. 
So there are health sharing entities, which is like a healthcare co-op. And what these individuals find is that it's cheaper for them to pay for a direct primary care membership, know that their primary care is being covered, and then if there's something catastrophic or a, a larger fee, um, something that happens and, and their charges are higher, that cost-sharing entity will help with the payments, and I'm, I refer to the specialist as needed. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And so another piece of this is going to be, so managing long-term chronic type of conditions like diabetes, these types of ailments, is that something that your clinic or other DPCs would be doing? Or is that something where you may be better off going over and having somebody that specializes in, in managing those types of ailments? So again, Casey, I'm going to tell you, you're just breaking up just a little bit. I can still get the gist of what you're asking. But the answer to your question is family physicians go to four years of medical school, just like all other medical students do. And then family physicians additionally have three years of specialty training in family medicine. And again, it's considered from the cradle to the grave. So we we learn pretty much everything, many, all aspects of, of the common, common ailments. So um, congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, obesity, anemias. I have people with thalassemia. I take care of people who have had kidney transplants. I don't have any heart transplant patients right now, but I've taken care of them in the past. So the answer to your question is yes, a a residency-trained family physician, and I'm emphasizing family physician here because I do want to speak to the term provider. A residency-trained family physician should be able to help a person care for their medical issues. And if there's something, for example, our national guidelines require um, diabetic patients to see a nephrology if certain to, to see a kidney doctor, a nephrologist, if certain things are present in their in their health issues. And in fact, this comes back again to the to the business of medicine. If I have a diabetic patient who has not seen a nephrologist in the last year, or there is not evidence on their chart of seeing a nephrologist, I potentially can have what I am paid for seeing that patient reduced because the insurance company can say, well, you didn't send the patient to the nephrologist. So and, and what's, the, there. what's the nephrologist? It's just... That's a kidney doctor. Okay. Okay. Kidney specialist. Yeah, and... So a, fam- a family physician, a board certified family physician should be able to take care of the majority of your health issues and should be able to refer as needed to the specialist who then do a consult. So, for example, if you came to me with diabetic kidney disease, I would say, oh, gosh, Casey, we need you to go and see the kidney specialist, the nephrologist, and I would refer you to the nephrologist. The nephrologist would take the labs and the studies and everything that we've done before you go to the nephrologist, and that specialist would review everything. They would talk to you. They would do an exam. They would order any additional 
um, studies that needed to be ordered, and then they would provide a consultation report back to me saying, well, Casey looks really great. His numbers are good. His blood pressure is a little bit high. Let's raise the um, lisinopril dose. Make sure you keep him on this type of medicine. I'll see him back in a year. And then we carry on within my practice and I monitor numbers and we monitor blood pressure and, and, um, and I help you take care of your health. So when a lot of people are thinking about health insurance, I could be wrong on this. I'm just in my conversations with, with uh, individuals, a lot of people are worried when they talk about health insurance, health care, they're, they're more worried about the major things. They're not looking at what a family care provider or a health, family care physician is doing. I know you don't like the word provider. I want to give you a chance to tell me why that is here in just a second. But most people aren't looking at the preventative. So when I think about a direct primary care model, when I'm reading about it, I don't know anything about that as far as I've never been to one. I've never used one. I'm initially thinking, okay, this I'm going to pay this small amount relative to what I pay right now in insurance, and that's going to get rid of my need for insurance. That's not the case. What it looks like here is that the DPC model is going to take uh, a uh, an individual, and it's going to substitute you going to a major mainstream clinic and perhaps not getting the the adequate or the best possible preventative care, it's going to shift. So now you shift it over to a DPC model where you get twice as much time with a physician on call and you're doing a better job preventing a future catastrophic or not catastrophic, but future long-term ailments. So it's, it's more of a prevention thing. It is going to be an added cost to the customer to the consumer in general, kind of, you know, it's hard for me to explain exactly how that would be, but if you still need to, if I'm a family and I still need to hold on to insurance in case somebody gets injured, there are the chances for medical sharing, which could offset that. But if you're holding on to normal insurance, the DPC is a little bit more added costs on the front end, but maybe preventing problems down the road. Well, basically, if you belong to a direct primary clinic, again, likening this to car insurance, right? You purchase car insurance so that if you have a a, a big old smash up, you can either get a new car or you can get your car fixed. But you don't purchase, purchase car insurance to change your oil and, you know, fix your headlight and all that podunky stuff that goes on. But you do that maintenance to your car to keep your car running. So, the same thing applies to healthcare. You do or should do the maintenance to keep your body running. You should exercise. You should eat correctly. You know, take a vitamin. Do the things that that keep your body, your mechanical apparatus, running correctly. And direct primary care, yes, tends to be more of a wellness sort of focus because. Although direct primary care is about providing a physician and that physician's employees uh, a income, direct primary care is more about taking care of the patient. The business of medicine works on illness. Illness makes money, okay? So direct primary nice care is more about wellness, and a person should have that insurance, just like they do for their vehicle, that will cover the catastrophic. Now, whether that is health insurance or whether that is membership in a cost sharing program 
a person has to make that decision themselves. And I'm going to throw out a plug here for, I want to say it's Senate Bill 2999. You actually, yeah, it's Senate Bill 2999 in the federal Senate is um, a bill that seeks to allow people who have health savings accounts to use those health savings funds to pay for direct primary care memberships. And for for a number of reasons, sort of tied up with the Federal Reserve and the IRS, not the Federal Reserve, sorry, the IRS, HSAs, the funds from health savings accounts have not been allowed to be used for direct primary care memberships. I suspect if that bill was passed, there would be a lot more people who would actually do DPCs because well, they want to see so. their physicians. They, you know, they, they want, I mean, come on, Casey, when you go to the doctor, do you want to walk in, sit there and wait for an hour, have the physician walk in with a computer, focus on the computer for seven out of 15 minutes, look at you, say a few words and leave the room? Is that what you want? No, that's not at all what I want. And I think that's one of the hurdles for me going to the doctor is I want to mm-hmm. go in and see Dr. Hornberger. Maybe if I see you in the store, I say, hey, how are you doing, Gail? I want to come in. You know me. And I want to identify that there's a, a problem. Because another thing is that I've, I've heard, I don't know how many times, it's at least five or six times that I've heard of of different people talk about, they went in with a problem and they said, Hey, this is a, this is an issue. Maybe you're feeling extra tired right now. And the doctor says, well, you know, that's just part of it or whatever. And with persistence, uh, and it's because they didn't know the, the, uh, the physician that they were seeing with persistence, they get a test done and it turns out that they've got blockage in an artery or something. That's, that's just the most recent story that I've, I've heard, mm-hmm. but the patient didn't know that physician, that physician didn't know the patient. There's no way to know if the physician knew that patient, patient personally, that physician would know there's no way that this, that this guy is, uh, you know, lazy and slowing down. He works 12 hours a day, six days a week, and he's 64 years old or however old, you know? So this is, this is a hardworking guy and this is out of the norm. And that's what you can get with with the DPC model. It sounds like. Right. Well, Yes, that is true, and and interesting enough, um, interestingly enough, is many of my patients um, whom I'm, you know, if I send them for a stress test or a colonoscopy or whatever, they'll text me as soon as they're they're done and say, "Oh, it went great," or you know, "Not so great." I'm okay with that. Let me talk just a second about some of these the issues with DPC model, though you're going to need to be somewhat selective of who you allow into your membership, I, I imagine. Otherwise, because you can't have a panel, if, if you're going to open it up to 600 people, you certainly can't have 600 people over the age of 65 and 90% of which have diabetes and are obese. Otherwise, you're going to go bankrupt. Well, I would say, first of all, I'm not selective. Um, okay. I have people that attend my practice from all walks of life. Um, and some of those people can't afford the DPC membership. And so I either provide their care for free or we, they bring me flowers or they bring me bread or I don't know. They, you know, they, they come and they, they rake the, the stones off the driveway for me. So 
I might be different than many physicians, but I do, um, I, I do feel that as a physician, I have an obligation to take care of people. So no, I really don't screen my patients. However, having said that, there are people that will come to see me and they don't like me. My style of caring for people does not fit with them. And so they go elsewhere. That's going to happen. I, you know, I imagine you're providing a, you're providing some sort of service and care and there's a lot of different options. Another thing people would say would be, well, you used to have a, a panel of 6,000 patients. You're down to 500, 600. Mm-hmm. If that happens nationwide, there's not going to be enough providers because you know, now right. there's going to be a physician crunch. And and that is one of the arguments, fewer patients to a doctor. So, so there are going to be less, you know, less physicians available. Um, and, that then speaks to the issue of the term provider. And in the United States, we actually have um, just this burgeoning population of, of physician assistants and nurse practitioners, advanced nurse practitioners, or now they call them doctors of nursing. And I have worked with many um, nurse practitioners. I've worked with many PAs. I have personally trained and employed um three amazing physician assistants who did a great job. And I do believe that these providers can really assist in medical care and they are assisting. But but then we come back to um, the issues of, for example, urgent care um, or the large clinics where they, they where people are run through, I call it cattle call medicine. I'm sorry, but I just do. People, I think people identify with that. I think people would, would say the same thing. Yeah. And, and so in those situations, I think many times the, the nurse practitioners and the PAs don't have the supervision that they need. They don't go through residencies. They do not go through the training that physicians, all physicians have to go through. And so even though I know some, I mean, amazing physician assistants and amazing nurse practitioners. Um, if I have to see someone for care, my preference is to see a doctor. We set up a, a plan and we figure it out. And then if that doctor's not available and I need to be seen, I might say, okay, I'll see the PA. But my preference is I want to see the doctor. So there's the provider conversation. There is a lot of talk about, and it's been going on like this for for decades, it's not like it's a new thing, but there is talk about okay, maybe PAs, maybe nurse practitioners, maybe they need to, maybe we need to free them up to to see patients more freely without the supervision of a of a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the things you could have a, a nurse practitioner that goes into competition with you, a DO potentially in setting up DPC types of models. Right now, they wouldn't allow that, but um, that is one of Actually, the they can. Oh, they can? Nurse practitioners can practice under their own license. Physician assistants right now, if they want to set up their own clinic, they must have a supervising um, physician. So the nurse... Collaborating physician is what it's called. The nurse practitioner can do it on their own, but the PA can't? Correct. Okay, that's, I mean, that's interesting to me because, I, like I said, I don't go into the hospital frequently. I don't work there. I don't know how that works, and that's why it's such an interesting topic to me. So the nurse practitioner, I could see 
a, a great benefit to them. Let's just talk Alaska to a nurse practitioner that's willing to travel to rural underserved communities. Um, mm-hmm. That I think that that would help out great. I can yeah. I can see where that would work. I think if I'm I think if I'm a consumer and I'm in Fairbanks, I'm in Juneau, I'm in Anchorage, I've got options. I think I'm going to want to see it a doctor just uh, that may not even be the right thing uh, maybe a nurse practitioner can provide service just as well as a doctor i don't know but i'm just going to want to see a doctor right so a nurse practitioner and a pa can provide basic care and generally a nurse practitioner or a pa will sort of specialize so like a pa might do family medicine nurse practitioner might do cardiology um, but there are some that set up their own standalone clinics, and and I respect that. I think that's fine. My my caution is just that they're not physicians, and unless <laughs> you have to go through a residency and you have to go through the training to really understand what a physician goes through to gain the expertise and the the training, you know, the experiences that that we get. It's just um, if you haven't done it, you you don't understand it. And, and the average the average person nowadays really many times doesn't differentiate. You know, they call the PA, oh, doctor, so-and-so. And I'm always careful to correct people and say, no, they're not a physician. They're a physician assistant. There is a difference or they're an NP. Now, I do have to quick throw out um, that some of the most amazing nurse practitioners I've ever worked with were the old battle acts health nurses from the remote communities. You know, I grew up with one of those nurses and she was amazing. Don't see many of those anymore. So I don't know what the, the, the main, the large scale, the large scale hospitals, how a nurse, because nurse practitioners, et cetera, they have to have thousands of hours of work and et cetera, but it's not going to compare to the residency requirements of MDBO type of, type of program I'm sure um, they they do have nursing experience a lot of them nowadays are going right from nursing school into um, their quote-unquote doctorate of nursing and um, yeah, I think it really depends on the person it depends on what you put into it and how much you're willing to study and read and and keep up with current guidelines and that sort of thing um, but I I'm sure there are people who are all, who will who would argue with me. I personally believe you cannot replace the experience that a physician gets doing a residency. Now, what about the what about the business of the DPC? So you talked about the business the business of medicine. Now there has mm-hmm. to be something that's the business of an alternative form of providing, so concierge or DPC. Now those are, those two are not the same though they're they're kind of in the same category but for you the what type of staff do you have to have um, what what's what does that look like are dpcs going to be only only successful in very populated areas okay not that fairbanks um, is super populated i'm i'm losing you a little bit casey so um first of all um concierge and dpc um, are two different things in my estimation, and I really don't like the term concierge applied to my practice. So to me, concierge is 
you pay a lot of money and you get, you know, the the physician that comes to your house and they've got the van that's got the portable x-ray and, and so on. And sometimes they don't have all that, but you still pay a lot of money to, to have that physician come and take care of you. Direct primary care is more about getting primary care, primary medical care to the masses, basically, to for, for people to be able to afford to see their physician. And, and people will argue with me, well, it's so expensive. And I just say, yeah, right. And how many lattes do you buy a month? Do you have a gym membership that you're not using? You know, what what what's your discretionary spending on a monthly basis and well, is your health worth that and, and people okay? people worry about uh, these all the time you know oh my goodness i can't believe the i cannot i absolutely cannot believe the the cost of a gallon of gasoline right now in bristol bay you know it's oh well in dillingham four dollars 97 cents a gallon i can't believe that but you're willing to pay 13.99 a gallon for coca-cola but Right, exactly. <laughs> Let's not go there, okay? okay. So I, I, I do want to speak to staffing, and um, I think this is pretty universal with direct primary care practices. So the business of the practice is, um, again, getting moving things back to where it's patient-centric. The, the physician-patient relationship is the center of the care. And um, in my practice, I have myself, I have... Um, an administrative assistant who I have also um, trained um, in some medical assisting skills. So she assists me with that. Um, and then I have another person who comes in and covers when my administrative assistant wants to take vacation, which is very important. So really, there are two people that work in this clinic. And what that means is that I, as a physician, then I end up doing vitals. I end up Providing the B12s, if, if injections, if there's immunizations, I do that. Um, it's it's definitely a team. It's not, you know, me going to see a patient who has been checked in and sanitized and and notarized and stamped and okay, doc, you can go in and talk to this patient for seven minutes and leave, and then we'll pick up. Yeah, and, and usually with your, you know, you've got to file the the entire thing on your iPad because it goes to my portal that I've got to sign up for. And then I get this, you know, you have to type in two sentences that says, this is what you should do over the next year. And we made eye contact only once or twice. That's in the mainstream. Yeah. That, those are my experiences that I've had. Yeah. Well, people, I've had discussions in the past with individuals who have said, well, your, your clinic cannot be a, medical home um, and and I argue with that you know we are a, a patient's medical home here because we know the patients and so a oh gosh I'm, I'm blanking on the term but a, a, a patient's um, medical home basically is they they think in those instances of providing care as a team and I would say that in those instances you have to have the team because you have so many people coming through and that physician only has, you know, 15 minutes if they're lucky, seven minutes face-to-face -face if they're really lucky. So you have to have someone who does um, the diabetic counseling and the B12 injection and the 
oh, you need to see the mental health specialist. Let's go over here. You know, so you have to have that team, patient-centered medical home. Another um, thing that another thing that you that you see a lot of in other clinics that I've looked at is you have both the the primary care and you have a lot of aesthetic type of treatments. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's these add-ons that you can kind of you know you can pick and choose. Maybe it's um, laser, Botox. Right. When you get down into lower 48, it's just, you know, massages and it's attached to a gym and maybe you have a a doctor and a dentist together so you can get a teeth cleaning and a teeth whitening. There's all sorts of, you know, pick and choose as you go, but most of them are just, uh, most DPCs are a small uh, physician directly to the, directly to the patient. Right. Right. Can I say one thing about insurance, Casey? Yes. So... An argument against direct primary care is that with direct primary care, if a patient does have catastrophic insurance and they want to submit, um, you know, something to insurance, then they have to, they're going to have to become involved in their insurance. And I hear this all the time. And I would just say to, to individuals, you should be involved in your medical insurance if you are paying the cost of the premiums, which I don't know how much you pay a month, but Almost I have patients. Yeah, so I have patients that pay anywhere from twelve hundred to twenty eight hundred or more a month. If you are paying that much for health insurance, you should take the time to read your benefits booklet to understand what that covers to know how to get a hold of your insurance company and and be able to submit and be able to advocate for yourself when they deny things and say, why are you not covering this? People just sort of get insurance and they have their card and they feel like it covers everything. But I will tell you, insurance does not cover everything. And on a yearly basis, the insurance companies want to cover less and less and less. And they leave it completely up to the provider to hire some sort of administrative staff, and and then you're just expected to see the bill. Um, right. Um, so you started out, you, you came out of uh, school, you get done with mm-hmm. residency, you come, you start a normal practice, and you've grown into where you've decided to go to the DPC model. Oh, Casey, can you repeat that, please? Yes. So you went to normal school, you go to normal residency, you get done, you come out and you have a normal mainstream type of practice, you get that sort of experience. So yeah. Now with the model, if you are brand new, like you just come out of school and you want to be a primary care provider, are people just coming directly out of residency, moving into this this field, is it more attractive or is it the type of thing where you're going to go to a mainstream hospital? And I'm just talking about what's more likely. You're going to a mainstream hospital and then at some point you decide to do something different. Would would a new right. physician be able to come out and run an operation like what you have at Midnight Sun as a DPC? I, I think that would be much less common. I've seen a couple of, of um, personal stories from physicians who, you know, went through residency, found that 
um, they just, well, burnout, it's a huge issue now and, and was a primary issue in me going to a direct primary care model. So I think um, from a financial standpoint, I think it would be very difficult for a new residency, say a new family physician residency graduate to move right into a direct primary care model. Most of what I've seen is DPC um, clinics that were physicians who had an established clinic or, you know, an established practice and just reached a point where they said, I can't do this anymore. Um, And instead of then shutting doors and, say, moving to the emergency room or urgent cares, which a lot of family physicians are doing, that's a whole other topic, um, they said, well, I really want to take care of patients but my health is important, so I'll, I'll do direct primary care. So I don't think, I think it would be difficult for a resident coming straight out of residency to set up a DPC. Anything that you read about establishing a DPC clinic says be prepared, have at least three years of savings, be prepared to struggle. And I have to say that, um, you know, I, like I said, I know HVAC and plumber specialists who make far more money than I do. Um, We run on a pretty fine line at this clinic, but I am able to provide really excellent care to my patients in the way that I think people deserve to be cared for. For your for your clinic, do you when you moved into your clinic, you already had the building. I assume you already had the. You already had all of the equipment, etc. So that wasn't the overhead cost for yours. If you were beginning again from scratch, do you have a lot of equipment that goes into running your clinic, or is it pretty basic? Because you said you didn't have X-ray, etc. So you pretty basic equipment. Um, well, when I moved from a um, standard mainstream medical practice to direct primary care, I actually was renting. Space. And, of course, because it's a medical space, it was incredibly expensive. It was about $10,000 a month. And I was able to use my own savings, and I had a small clinic built. So I have my own small clinic building, um, and I have the basic equipment. I do um, cholesterol panels. I can do glycohemoglobins. I can do, you know, just basic I call them little labs. Um, they're called Clea Waved Labs here in the office. Um, but no, I don't have X-ray. So the cost, the cost to start the clinic, are not necessarily the hurdle. The hurdle is bringing customers in, getting consumers to decide. Look, I'm not going to go to Providence Regional for my primary care. I'm going to go see Dr. Hornberger. That seems to be more the the hard problem. Right. So so I think the hardest part with direct primary care has been educating people. And again, comes back to the business of medicine for so long. You know, people have had that little plastic card. Oh, I've got insurance. It covers everything. And so they say, well, why would I spend an extra, you know, 50 to $150 a month to come and see you and my insurance will cover everything? And then they go, you know, they see the PA or they see the nurse practitioner or they see a physician for seven minutes and, and they're happy with that. So the hardest part is just re, 
re-educating people really about what healthcare should be like. And I don't know, uh, our American ideal of healthcare has has greatly changed. The the physician-patient relationship for many people no longer matters. It's just, I want care and I want care now, and I'm going to go to where I can get it right now. Well, and you have you have a pretty significant move towards perhaps providers should be perhaps all you know all of our care should be free universalized. Which, if if you were to universalize it, I think that that would pose significant problems. I was once in the military. I see that the military care is is um, great for while you're in service, but. One of the things that nobody takes into consideration is that it's one of the most highly selective organizations in the country. So you have uh, generally uh, male or females that are in great physical shape. They're between the ages of 18 and 39. Um, they have young families that don't have huge costs. So service or care while you're in, you know, if you're at Fort Wainwright for service members, that's great. But it's not very good in the VA once you start uh, mixing in all of the medical ailments of old age or other treatments that have that are no longer self-selected out. So right. that's that's a major problem, and nobody will talk about that realistically. But um, you know, that's a, that's also another topic. Well, I'm, I hope that maybe we can we can talk. You know, months from now, get updates from you about some of the other things. One thing that's interesting to me right now: one of my brothers lives in China. Um, he can't speak to me that much about the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, we speak over WeChat. There are some concerns if he speaks to me too much about numbers, etc. He can't be in trouble for causing hysterias and and stuff. What do you think about how coronavirus is going to go? Any recommendations for that? We're ready for it. We're not ready for it. Well, I think the the straight on answer is yes, it's going to be here. I personally think by the end of March, we'll probably have cases in Alaska. Uh, I think there's a lot of hysteria over it that is not necessarily warranted. The influenza actually has worse statistics. So if you haven't gotten your flu shot this year, you should get your flu shot. But basically... Um, people just need to be prepared. <laughs> it's funny that you asked this. I, I actually was thinking about this this morning is that, um, you know, wash your hands. Don't, don't touch your face. There's, uh, um, the four principles of, of hand care. Um, and it's, um, wash your hands before eating. Don't touch your face. Don't sneeze into your hands. Essentially, it boils down to personal hygiene. And I've had a lot of people asking me, well, what do I do? I've got a trip planned. Well, take your trip, but be careful. Um, take a mask with you and, you know, sanitize your airline seat. Use hand sanitizer always. If you're near someone who's coughing and spewing, ask to be reseated or, or move if you can. Take, take health precautions that we as, as citizens don't always do. And take care of yourself. It, you know, if you if you're if you're unhealthy to start with, your risk is higher. So if you're not exercising and you're not eating a healthy diet and you're not taking care of yourself, then yes, your risk is higher. How's that? Well, that's that's good. I mean, it's it's close enough. I'm not terribly concerned about it. I was just recently. You know, you can, luckily, 
you or anybody listening can't get coronavirus from me, but we've been joking about it because I was just recently in uh, LAX and Seattle Airport. I mean, by recently, I mean like in the last 10 days. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of been the areas where people have been worried about it, LA and Seattle. So we'll see what happens. Maybe maybe it will be a bad deal for me. But if you were if you were to, in summary, if you were talking to me, we ran into each other at Freddy's, and you said this is why you should switch to a DPC clinic tomorrow. This is me with my wife and three children. What would be the the number one reason why? I'm, what would be what? What would be the number one reason why? Is, is it is it because of cost, or or is it because of what the relationship that you get with the physician, or what's the number one draw for me to come and see you? Well, I think as a consumer, the number one draw is cost. From a physician standpoint, it's it's the um, enduring care that you receive, the type of care that you receive. Well, I have really appreciated talking to you. I think that I, there's maybe one or two clinics like yours in the state. They don't seem to be uh, catching on as much as they are in, in other states with higher populations, but um, it's a really interesting model. It's interesting to learn about, and sometime in the future, it'd be great to talk to you about Further, as, as I develop more ideas, talk to more people about exactly how a DPC works. So I really appreciate your time, the, the uh, almost hour and a half that you gave me. And if we started going down the rabbit hole of insurances, number one, I'd, I'd get extremely frustrated with it. And it sounds like you've had enough experiences that are, that are negative there. But maybe we could talk about insurance sometime just specifically dedicated to it down the road. I would be open to doing that, Casey. It's been great talking to you. And I I just, again, I come back to the, um, we have a mutual thread in John Libby. He was an amazing man. And, um, you know, I, I just, I attribute much of my love of medicine to what, you know, I was exposed through, exposed to through his care. Um, I'm a family doctor through and through, so thanks for letting me expound on that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have the, the connections to Bristol Bay. You may have, at one time, younger, when you were talking with John Libby, known uh, Dr. O'Connell, some of the other people in Bristol Bay that have been out here for a long time working working hmm. to keep people healthy. But very interesting tie that we have, and I, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yep, me too. You take care.